Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, author and Princeton University English professor Jean Andrew Jarrett talks about his biography of a Gilded Age writer known as the Poet Laureate of his race. The book, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Life and Times of a Cage Bird, was published in October 2022 by Princeton University Press. Jean Andrew Jarrett was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Professor Jean Andrew Jarrett, welcome to this discussion of your book. I live in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is 20 miles from Dayton, so I was really eager to read this, and it delivered (laughs) on some of the questions I had. So I guess maybe for someone who doesn't know why Paul Lawrence Dunbar is important, you could explain what about his life do we all need to know? So I guess the simplest thing I would say is Paul Lawrence Dunbar was born in Dayton, Ohio, was born in 1872. He died in 1906. So he didn't live a very long life, but he did a lot of things, not only in his personal life, but also in his professional life. And he was also a prolific writer. He descended from slaves who were born in Kentucky, and his parents met in Ohio, and that's where he was born. And so Paul Stumbar, as an African-American who developed into a great writer. He was known especially as a poet. He's someone who bridged the generation of people of African descent who were enslaved and who were just learning about what it meant to be free and to have political franchise. And he is someone who was born in the postbellum 19th century and who was uh, kind of progressing towards the turn of the 20th century and understanding what it meant to be a professional writer, to have access to resources, to to be able to, to read in classrooms now that it's not uh, forbidden, particularly for those who were enslaved. And so he is a person through whose life you're able to understand what it meant to be uh, an African-American in the late 19th century and the challenges and opportunities that existed at the turn of the 20th century. What about his literary career? results in him being the person for whom many high schools are named, uh, academies, even though, like you said, he didn't live very long. But in the African-American community, I think many people identify with him by naming different things after him. Yeah. And so just to put in perspective, he had published 14 books of poetry over his lifetime. And by his lifetime, I mean his professional lifetime, starting from 1893, that was the publication of his first book of poetry, to the end of his life in 1906. So we're talking about a span of essentially 13 and 15 years. He had published 14 books of poetry, four collections of short stories, and four novels. He was an erstwhile librettist, Uh, He was someone who was remarkably versatile as well in the essay. And so he had published important essays on 
race and politics and what it meant to be an African-American in the United States and abroad. So he has that wide foundation of literary works that certainly warrant a closer study of him. But it's the specific nature of his writing that's crucial. And I focus especially on the poetry. He was a masterful illustrator of dialect. And dialect uh, was a kind of a transcription of language such that it represented sometimes a regional identity. Uh, and there are ways in which it presumably represented on occasions an African-American identity, particularly when he was representing the lives of those who were enslaved. And these poems, he often called them lyrics, are things that are pithy pieces that people could memorize. Uh, there was a melodic quality to them. These are works that circulated quite a bit in the African-American community. I guess what I will say is that he faced a conundrum. There was great interest in his dialect writing, but he also wanted to spread his wings, if you will, and produce poetry in formal English, the kind of Victorian literary language that you'd come across in the uh, 19th century, and that was not as commercially uh, successful. And so there was a way that he had to earn money, and he leaned into writing in dialect. On the other hand, he also tried to experiment in a variety of literary forms. And so he's well known in various communities for his literature, his dialect literature in particular, but I also think he's especially captivating for wrestling with the expectations that he write in one genre versus the other. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that goes to your subtitle, The Life and Times of a Caged Bird, and how he came to feel trapped by that desire of some in the market for only dialect poetry. That's right. And so as a biography, it's classic to have uh, Life and Times. You know, Frederick Douglass one of his autobiographies of the 19th century is A Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. And it's a refrain in how you encounter that idea in African-American history. But caged bird, that phrase is an interesting one. And I refer to it in the epigraph. Uh, there's a poem called Sympathy, and it was published in Lyrics of the Hearthside. That was in 1899. And that phrase, caged bird, was central to the title of Maya Angelou's 1969 autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And, and that is a, a memoir that touches on the plight of a Black girl as she deals with rampant sexism and racism in society. Maya Angelou had drawn upon the idea of a cage bird from Paul Lawrence Dunbar, from his poem Sympathy. And I'll read the first stanza to you because I think it captures the conundrum of that cage bird. It says, I know what the cage bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass and the river flows like a stream of glass. And the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals, I know what the cage bird feels. And I believe that the cage bird is an autobiographical trope of the life of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, someone who 
wanted to spread his wings. He wanted to have utter freedom, not only in his life, but in his literature. And he found that he was encaged, in my view, within the expectations of the world. Uh, the challenge he faced is a challenge that many of us face, which is we have certain ideas of who we are, of our own identity, and we have to reckon with how society views us. And our life is often a negotiation between those two perspectives, the inner perspective of the self and the external perspective of ourselves. Dunbar, in a way, captured this challenge inside the cage bird. And that cage bird is trying to be free, but it's coming up against these expectations, this cage. And I thought that was a key metaphor of the subtitle for this biography. One of the points you make is that he is in the vanguard of African-American poets of that era. When he is coming to more fame, the only reference point that people have for a poet is Phyllis Wheatley, who is centuries before. And so it seems like the market doesn't know what to do with them. And then that period when he's coming to fame is the same time that the country is moving toward becoming more segregated and he's navigating that. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, William Howells published a review of Dunbar's book of poetry, Majors and Minors, and that was published in 1895, and it received widespread acclaim through Howells's review. But if you take a close look at that review, it's almost a way of uh, William Howells trying to understand who Dunbar was, what he represented. Uh, William Howells was someone who was called the Dean of American Letters. He could make or break a career in the late uh, 19th century. And so Dunbar himself was flattered to be reviewed by someone of this person's stature. But I think Howells himself represented how people in the late 19th century were still struggling to understand Black intellectual progress, trying to understand Black professional success, this kind of disjuncture between racial uplift, uh, the ways in which you had societies of men and women who were intellectual who were persevering for greater political franchise on the one hand, and on the other, this kind of nostalgia that many whites had for the time when blacks were enslaved. You know, it was only three decades before that African Americans were emancipated, and you had whites in the late 19th century who had owned slaves previously or were in close proximity to people who had owned slaves. And so Dunbar himself was part of this generation of African-American writers who were grappling with this white nostalgia for a pre-Civil War past. And so in the nexus of that backdrop, you have uh, Dunbar himself, who is producing literature that kind of caters to certain preconceptions about Blacks with this dialect, but very much he was attentive to the humanity of people of African descent around the world. And so I think that is the interesting uh, story that I try to convey in the book. The other part of the subtitle, the times that he lived, you convey how he had connections to some of the major figures of the time, some that I think might be a, a surprise for readers. Because I live in the Dayton area, 
we know of his relationship with the Wright brothers, but that's not a logical connection. I devote an entire chapter almost to talking about Dunbar's relationship to the Wright brothers, you know, people that we uh, associate with inventing the airplane or other kinds of innovations, uh, you know, such as the bicycle. But they had lived in the Dayton community, and they went to the same high school, Central High School in, in Dayton. And it was there that they partnered up and uh, launched a newspaper called the Dayton Tatler, which they had published in 1890. And it was a newspaper that was designed to cater to the African-American community of Dayton. I should say that uh, the Wright brothers had great experience with the printing press. They were already publishing something for the West Dayton community. They also had published pamphlets or flyers for the local community. So they had great experience in publishing literature or newspapers. But Dunbar, because he had a relationship with Orville Wright in particular, he decided to go on this venture to publish the Dayton Tadler. And it was in that context that he was able to learn a variety of skills regarding being a writer, being an editor, and also learning quite a bit about the publishing business. These are all skills that would bode well for him in the future. I guess the deeper thing I would also say is how, you know, despite the backdrop where Blacks and whites had a strange relationship in society as a result of segregation, a Black boy and a white boy were able to come together for the purpose of entrepreneurial experimentation or, or innovation. And it was that way that they came together in spite of the color line in order to do something that I thought was rather remarkable. And I would refer to a reflection uh, by Orville Wright that he and Dunbar were close uh, when they were young boys. And it's this pivotal moment in time when they connected with each other and then they parted ways and one goes off to change the world with the airplane with his brother and the other one goes off to change the world through literature. And so I thought that this flashpoint of interaction between these two is one of the more unheralded stories in American history. And then he connects with... Frederick Douglass, and uh, in his later years, is relatively close to him. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. You know, I think if there's one thing that comes out in reading this biography, if, if I may, based on the evidence I saw, it was Dunbar was remarkably skilled in navigating the various networks of literary culture and or broader intellectual culture. And so he was able to build a relationship with the Wright brothers. You know, there are others uh, such as uh, William Howells or James Newton Matthews. And here I'd say Frederick Douglass. And so they especially built a relationship uh, during the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago. This was in 1893. And this was where you had a quote unquote world's fair. It was a showcase of all the various cultures in the world, not only in the Western world, but they even had representations of African life, which of course, you know, uh, appeal to certain stereotypes, which I touch on in the book. But it was at the World's Columbia Exposition in Chicago that Dunbar was able to see firsthand the genius of Frederick Douglass, to see the depth of Douglas's passion for Black civil rights, to see the, the, the true angst that Douglas felt as he witnessed African-Americans, particularly at the 
exhibition uh, being exploited. And it was in that context that Dunbar was able to fine tune his voice on behalf of the African-American community. And so there are instances there where I point out that Dunbar was able to circulate his own poetry, which touched on the great strength of uh, African-Americans as in their pursuit of freedom. And it was through this bond with Frederick Douglass that he was able to learn more about the literary field. And at least up until uh, Frederick Douglass would die, just a, a few years later, it was within that time span that Dunbar tried to learn very much about his legacy and, how, and what that portended for his own life. A major part of the narrative is his relationship with Alice Ruth Moore. And I mean, that's another example of the caged bird. It might be caged birds yes. in that case. Were there new sources that allowed you to explain in a fair amount of detail the nature of their relationship? Yeah. So I think I have to recognize that there's been previous work done on Alice. Uh, there's uh, Eleanor Alexander's book on the relationship, a uh, temperamental relationship between Paul Ernst Dunbar and Alice uh, Ruth Moore. She also went by Dunbar Nelson based on a subsequent relationship after Dunbar died. And so the thing that I had done probably more than my predecessors is I truly scoured the full array of correspondence between Alice and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And I tried to tease out the complexities of their relationship. And, and what you find is that they were an ordinary couple in the sense that they were rather flirtatious with one another, especially uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar at the outset. They uh, grappled with questions about race and, and about whether or not they would be successful as writers. They talked about other writers in America. They had conversations about Frederick Douglass or Charles Chestnut, and, and they used their letters as a chance to build uh, their bond. On the other hand, it's also true that they had a relationship that devolved into violence, physical violence, also verbal violence all the variety of things that made their relationship rather combustible. That multidimensional view of their relationship, uh, I was able to gather through close research of his letters of correspondence and just having a wide view and entertaining the full complexity of their personalities and their lives. And so to the extent that they had a relationship while he was alive, I tried to be as comprehensive and detailed as possible. Um, but I also say that Alice deserves a full biography of her own uh, because Dunbar died in 1906 and Alice lived well beyond that. But I do touch on that, I believe, in the epilogue to my book. In that epilogue, you mention how her letters survived because I think often the letters have the kind of content that it seems like you drew on end up getting burned. Yes. And I know you're not working on a biography of her, but she preserved those letters. She did. And I think great credit goes to her for preserving these letters to enable us to tell that story. 
These letters also more or less are in the public domain. You can, so you can go to the Ohio Historical Society to see them. And also these letters have been microfilmed and can be available as far away as the Schomburg Library. And so I, I think that is magnificent. Uh, but it's also true that when you have to write a biography, you have to grapple with literary estates. You know, I've published works that are under copyright and you have to work with its estates and there are fees uh, that you have to contend with. There are other kinds of costs that potentially are emotional or mental that an estate does not want to deal with. And these could all be hurdles to your ability to fully explore the aspects of someone's life, not only the positive aspects, but the negative aspects. And so the thing that I do in my biography is it's not merely a kind of a celebratory view of Dunbar, but there's a side of him that is not so celebrated, the side that was contradictory, uh, the side that was at times potentially abusive, you could use that word, uh, a side of him that underwent bouts of depression because he lacked confidence on whether he would succeed in his literary career. All elements that if he were alive today, I would venture, he'd say, wow, I'm surprised that that kind of information is available. But I think to conduct full due diligence on recreating his life, I, I thought that there was an opportunity for me to present this fullest picture to the best of my ability. Can you talk about your process in researching this book and in writing it? I know you mentioned it represents 14 years of work. That's a long time. I appreciate time. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a long time. I remember the moments when my children were being born and uh, the moments when I was trying to write those sections. It, it really covers a long arc. You know, I would say that, you know, the very first time I encountered Dunbar was as a student at Princeton. I was an undergrad and I came across his first novel, The Uncalled. It was published in 1898. And I also read his poetry. I also read uh, one of his more popular novels called uh, The Sport of the Gods. And that's where I had my first sense of the fact that Dunbar was talented, just through his literature. And it gave me a chance to engage with the field of scholars who were examining his work and trying to make sense of the full play of symbols and historical meaning that could be elicited from his work. As time went on, you know, I wrote about Dunbar in my doctoral dissertation. I turned that into my first book, and I have a couple of chapters on Dunbar there. I also refer to Dunbar's political activism in my second book, uh, Representing the Race. And so by the time I entered the period of writing the biography, I had a, a rather deep understanding of who Dunbar was as a writer and also the full scale of literary criticism about his work. Up until that point, and we're talking about around 2008, I had kind of dabbled in looking at his letters of correspondence. And I said, what if I devoted my full time to examining his letters of correspondence? And so once I was able to gather up the biographical portions of Dunbar's life and literature, that gave me the opportunity to build out his life. So in the course of writing the book, what was important to me was to be faithful to the chronology of his life. So you are bound by what he did in February versus what he did in March versus what he did in June later on, right? And so you can't mix those up. 
But what's also true is in any one day, in any one month, he was doing four or five different things. And you can't talk about everything all at once. And so there's a narrative challenge in laying out the various strands of his life. And so to give you an example, there was his intellectual development. So what he was reading, who he was talking to, there was a a, a personal development in his life, his relationship to Alice. There was a professional development in his life, his relationship to various editors and the literary marketplace. There was his literary development, uh, just looking deeply at the various forms and themes that were shaping his, his writing. There were historical developments in American society. And so paying attention to what's going on in the world, if there were various elections or controversies, how he was absorbing that information, or if he was not absorbing that information, what does it mean that he wasn't? And so there are all these different strands that were occurring simultaneously. And the challenge of biography is narrative, is interweaving these different strands such that you're being faithful to the chronology. On the other hand, being faithful to the complexity of his life, all the various strands of experience that he was uh, going through. And it was uh, probably the most difficult project that I've ever done uh, in my life, but I'm, I'm glad I, I did it. An example of the strands that came to mind was that relationship that he had with Booker T. Washington and Teddy Roosevelt. It really gives, I felt, a window on Dunbar, but also just the issues of the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, what someone could do, uh, probably a deeper analysis, is to just look at the triangular relationship of those three, Dunbar, Washington, and and Roosevelt. And Dunbar met them under different circumstances. And it goes back to the point I made where Dunbar was especially skilled in connecting with people in the highest echelons of, of life. And so In the late 19th century, Booker T. Washington was probably uh, the leading figure on African-American education and political progress uh, in the country. Uh, He was someone who talked about at the Atlanta Exposition about being as separate as the fingers on the hand, uh, but united in progress. And it implied a rather incremental view of African-American political gain. And you have uh, Theodore Roosevelt, someone who at one period was a a governor uh, in New York, and he eventually makes his way to being president of the United States. And Dunbar had relationships with both of them, and not just relationships, personal relationships. It's remarkable that Dunbar himself, by the time he built those relationships, he was barely in his mid to late 20s and early 30s. To be able to do that and only be a few decades removed from slavery, uh, where you're trying to uh, make a way for yourself as a writer, is, is truly extraordinary. And so the moments I have to take a step back and say, how possible is it for someone to accomplish that today? I'm sure there are examples people could list them, but I, I just think that it's quite rare. You know, I think this biography is important because... Dunbar's life is especially relevant for our times. It revealed the power of perseverance, what it means to strive to be successful against all odds. And the likelihood would have been great for any African-American within the few decades after slavery to fail. Dunbar 
kind of went against the odds and he was successful despite the specter of lynching, segregation, profound racial discrimination. You can go down the list of all the various things that African-Americans were facing, not in terms of how they've evolved today, but in the rawest of forms in the decades after slavery, Dunbar was dealing with it. And so he persevered. And I think that's a great American story, not only an African-American story. And I think despite these circumstances, he was able to produce beautiful literature, the kind of literature that gives you great pleasure, that enables you to immerse yourself in the imagination of, of life, of love, of nature, of the beauty of African-American life, of the willpower of African-Americans to acquire greater political franchise in the new world of the 19th century. I think that is a, a remarkable literary and intellectual experience for people to go through today. And what is still the importance of reading, of literature, in order to captivate us and, and enable us to elevate and grow our minds? That was Princeton University English professor and author Gene Andrew Jarrett talking about his book, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Life and Times of a Cage Bird. It was published in October 2022 by Princeton University Press. We recorded this interview via Zoom on October 14th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.